0: Welcome to the HT Cambridge podcast. For more information, see our website, htcambridge.org.uk. From Luke 23, verses 32 to 38, and that can be found on page 1060 of the Church Bibles. Jesus is being led to his death. So, uh, Luke 23, starting at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching
1: Evening everyone, and please keep that uh, passage open in front of you. I'm going to look at it more closely shortly, but I want to begin tonight with a question. Here's the question. What would you say is your greatest need? I don't mean what's your immediate need to get that essay done in time, to be able to pay that rather frightening bill next week. I mean your greatest need as a human being, my greatest need. What is humanity's greatest need, if you like? Now, people answer that question in all sorts of different ways. I suspect that the two most common in our culture is firstly to say what we need is more wealth. That's what the materialist answer is. If only everyone had enough money, all would be well. The trouble is that though money brings many, many things, it's never enough. The humanist, on the other hand, again, a very common view, particularly perhaps here in Cambridge, would answer our greatest need is more education. If only humanity, who is basically good, could just increase in knowledge and understanding, then all would be sorted. And, of course, the trouble with that view is that it fails to take into our account our moral perversity. Education may extend my horizon, but I, me, am still the centre of my universe. And, indeed, the evidence does not support the view that we are evolving to be morally better creatures. If anything, I would argue the evidence overwhelmingly points the other way. The last hundred years has seen two world wars, the Holocaust, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi, Robert Mugabe, ISIS. How much evidence do we need? So with relief let's turn to the right answer, the Bible's answer. And the Bible tells us that my greatest need, your greatest need, is forgiveness. We all need to be forgiven. It's on the night of November the 14th, 1940 that enemy aircraft bombed the city of Conventry and brought total destruction, killing many hundreds of lives and reducing to ruins the great medieval cathedral that had stood to the glory of God for centuries. In the ruins shortly afterwards, one of my predecessors as dean scratched and then later had engraved the words, Father, forgive. Very prophetic, daring words to say at that time, at the beginning of the war, after such suffering. And someone said to him, well, surely you mean, Father, forgive them. And no, he said, the point is that we all need forgiveness. And that is the Bible's statement. We were made for relationship with God, but every single one of us have rebelled against his rule. We've mounted a coup, if you like, and we've made ourselves dictator of our own lives, deliberately ignoring him and his way. And so for our true humanity to be restored... We need forgiveness. We need to be brought back into relationship with the loving God who made us. And that, the Bible tells us, is why Jesus came. That's the whole purpose. His whole life was leading to the cross where he would win the possibility of forgiveness for anyone. Most biographies concentrate on a person's life. I much enjoy biographies and usually there's a short chapter at the beginning about birth and parenthood, then the great extent of the work on the achievements of the individual and perhaps a final brief chapter at the end of the book on their death and how sad it was for everybody. Well, now the Gospels the biographies of Jesus, all in fact concentrate on his death. Over 25% of these Gospels are taken up with the last week of Jesus' life. And tonight we begin this new series, as Rupert says, a series of sermons leading up to Good Friday and to Easter, looking at the cross and in particular, looking at the seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And tonight's the first word, the word we had read in Luke 23. So let's, let's pray that God would help us to hear what he has to say for each of us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you know Us, you know our needs far better than we do. Thank you for being here and we pray that you would draw even closer now and speak to us so that we may hear and respond to your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 23, then, from verse 32, the reading we just had, page 1060, is still there in the church Bibles. Humor me, please, by rustling your pages and showing me that you're looking at it as well as listening to me. You need to check that what I'm saying actually arises from the Scripture, not my own brilliant thoughts. <laughs> what I want us to notice is three things from these few verses, and Firstly, wonderfully, let's start with Jesus' relationship with God. Verse 34. Father. That's how this first word begins. The cross is the cruelest means of execution yet devised by mankind. It's usually a slow death, gasping for breath, and often a person would go mad before actually dying. The Gospels don't dwell on the physical pain at all, indeed they hardly mention it. Their concern is how Jesus responded and what was going on in the spiritual world. I wonder what your reaction would be to that level of pain. I know that my threshold is not high. I get irritated if I have to do the washing up when I want to watch the football. I scream like a baby if a nail pierces my poor thumb and blood is drawn. And I will probably curse the nail as well. Very moderately, of course. (laughs) Jesus turns to God. The habit of his lifetime has been to pray, to enjoy relationship with his Father. And so strong is that habit that even in extremis, his first response as the nail is driven through his wrist is to cry out to God in prayer. Now the word habit has a bad press today, by and large. We tend to think of bad habits. And we spend our lives trying to break the habits. Some of us still here probably are trying to break the habit of sucking our thumbs, or biting our nails, or watching pornography, or swearing like a trooper. But there are such things as good habits. Prayer is a good habit to cultivate. Always, in all circumstances, first to turn to God. To involve him in the little things as well as the big things. To bring him the petty stuff as well as the crises. To praise him first thing in the morning when you wake up. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me safely to another day. To praise him throughout the day. And last thing at night, to give thanks always for every blessing, big and small, that he so generously pours out. Because that way, through that habit, even in pain, even at the hour of death, you will be praying. even as the nails are being hammered through Jesus' wrists, Jesus prays. And he prays in relationship with God, the one he knows intimately as Father. He's utterly sure of that relationship with God. And even in the face of horrendous torture, he needs to be sure of that relationship in those kind of circumstances. And it is every Christian's right to know God as Father. That is part of the privilege that Jesus has won. Indeed, he encouraged all who follow him to call God Father, to know him personally, to relate similarly. And it's that kind of relationship we all need in the crises of life that we will face. And we will face them, however successful you are at the moment. However well things are going, however much you're enjoying church and study and career and life, because we live in a fallen world, there will be difficulties ahead. We may be moved to recognize God as Lord when we're struck by some aspect of the beauty of creation. We may want to fall on our knees as we catch a fresh glimpse of his holiness. But in the grip of immediate horror, we need to know him as our Heavenly Father. We need to be in the habit of relating to him, just as Jesus did, personally, as our Father in Heaven. So then next we come on to Jesus' request and it is an extraordinary request. Verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. How fitting that Jesus' first word from the cross is to meet our deepest need. Even as his blood Begins to fall on the cross, on the ground. The purpose of that shed blood is lifted to God. Do not count their sin against them, count it against me, says Jesus. Do you think God answers the prayers of his beloved Son? There's only one prayer of Jesus that I can think of to which the Father couldn't give an immediate positive response. That was Jesus' understandable request just earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember? To take this cup from him. If there was any other way, he knew what lay ahead and he dreaded it. This was not an easy fulfillment of his purpose. But even there, Jesus added, nonetheless, your will, not mine, be done. There was no other way. And so Jesus' first prayer on the cross was exactly in line with the Father's will. And it's been answered. It's been answered. This is the greatest achievement of the cross. The fact of the possibility of forgiveness. The innocent, perfect Son of God, deliberately and voluntarily steps into the place that you and I deserve to be. He takes our sin upon himself. He takes the punishment that we deserve. God himself dies in our place. And so his purposes of redemption are completed. John Edison was a delightful old Christian that I had the privilege of meeting. He had a particular ministry to young people. He's written a number of books and was mightily used to bring children to a living faith in Jesus. He would say, you're never too young to come to Christ. He died uh, a few years ago now. He had a very simple faith and he expressed it very simply because of dealing with children, which is probably why I enjoyed him so much, could understand him and appreciated him. He wrote some profound hymns but using very simple language. And here's a verse from one of them that sums up the cross beautifully. At the cross of Jesus pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle, truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. That is exactly it. The penalty for our sin is paid by him. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was his love. I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Passion of Christ. It's a pretty gruesome film. I wouldn't recommend it to any faint-hearted. It's a rendition of the crucifixion directed by Uh, The film star, Mel Gibson, a Roman Catholic believer, he directed the film, but actually he only makes one appearance. You wouldn't know it was him. He chose to play the part of the soldier nailing Jesus to the cross. All you see is Gibson's hands putting the nail through Jesus' wrist. He got it. He realized that it was him who had nailed Jesus to the cross. It is you and me and our sin that nailed him to wood. He goes to death so that we might go free. But free we go! He takes the mess of our filthy clothes of shame on himself. But he offers us his robes of righteousness, his glorious white cleansing robes. How good a deal is that? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Notice that ignorance is not an excuse. It does not mean that they're innocent, they still need forgiveness. We may have been at one time ignorant of how serious our sin was. We still needed forgiveness. And those of our friends and family who don't recognize Jesus for who he is, who may be ignorant of his divinity and what happened on the cross, they still need forgiveness. The good news of the gospel is that forgiveness has been won. Jesus' relationship with his Father, his request, and so finally we come to our part. Our response. And the question is, what do we do with our guilt? If it's true, and it is, that all of us are guilty before God, what personally do we do with it? And people respond in different ways. Some try and bury their guilt. The trouble with that is that it doesn't stay in the grave. Our guilt rises up like some vampire and reminds us constantly of what we've done wrong. Isn't that your experience? Some deal with guilt by trying to blame others. It was his fault. She bears most of the responsibility. Of course, that excuse goes back to the beginning. Do you remember the story of the Garden of Eden? Adam's taken the apple, and of course he blames Eve. Then he goes on to blame God. It was the woman who gave me the apple, the woman you made. In effect, it's all your fault, God. It was the only woman around, and she gave me the apple. And Yet others just go on beating themselves up about their guilt constantly. I'm no good. I just can't break this habit. I can't possibly say I'm committed. I'm awful. God won't want me. Are you trying any of these hopeless responses this evening? Burying your guilt? Blaming others? Beating yourself up? Well, let me lead you to the door of freedom. The right response. And it involves three simple steps. And the first is this. Recognize your sin. This is actually the first step in most so-called recovery programs. And it's a great truth. As long as we're in denial, as long as we won't face up, acknowledge, admit our sin, our difficulty, we are lost. If we keep saying, well, I'm not that bad, it's not that serious, look at what he did, or look at what's going on there, everybody's doing it, then we have no real hope of making progress, of entering the wonderful reality of forgiveness. Until we face up and recognize and admit our need, we will never be able to deal with it. Are you willing to own up, face up, recognize your sin tonight? Secondly, we need to repent of our sin. Now, I know repentance is a technical word in danger of of being just a jargon word. But apart from beginning with R, uh, it is also a very helpful and accurate word if we understand it rightly. Repentance, you see, means more than just saying sorry. It does mean I'm sorry, but it means... I'm going to try and turn and go in a different direction to go God's way in the future. Are you willing to do that? To recognize that you have disobeyed God in whatever area the Holy Spirit is convicting you about and to say, Lord, I'm sorry about this and more than that, I choose to turn away from that kind of behavior in order to follow you in the future. Yes, I'm only too well aware that I may fail again, but I, right now, want to follow your way. Are you able to say that? Because that is true repentance. So let's apply this tonight in one specific area. You can apply it in all sorts of areas. But just to make the point, and as we're talking about forgiveness, let's hone in on that one. Because Jesus commands us, his followers, to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Indeed, that's part of the Lord's model of prayer that he taught us to use, didn't he? Beginning with personal relationship, our Father, it goes on, doesn't it, to ask, forgive us our trespasses or our sins as we forgive others. So say you're here tonight holding on to an element of unforgiveness about someone. Someone who hurt you, did something wrong to you. No argument about that. The major blame is on their side, and very understandably, you uh, are keeping hold of that resentment. Well, it is not true repentance to say to God, well, I'm sorry about that. It's not true repentance if we continue to harbour any elements of feelings of resentment to others. Unforgiveness can feel good for a bit. We deserve to feel that way having been treated so badly. But it is ultimately very destructive. It builds up within us, swilling around like acid. And sooner or later, it not only destroys within, but it spills out, causing further hurt to others. Are you holding on to some area of unforgiveness tonight? Against a parent, perhaps? Or a spouse? Or a former boyfriend or girlfriend? I choose those examples because it's often those closest to us who hurt us most. Repentance involves not just saying sorry, but saying, God, by your help, I'm going to let go. By your spirit, I'm going to leave it with you. I am determined to adopt an attitude of forgiveness. Are you willing to repent? Recognize, repent, and here's the third step. Receive God's forgiveness. And strangely, this is the hardest step because we feel we just don't deserve it. Or dead right, we don't deserve it. It is only able to be offered because of what Jesus went through. Of what he has done because of his amazing grace, as we sang earlier. But not only that, we feel like everything else in life, we need to do something to contribute. We need to try harder, to be gooder, to work longer, to serve better, whatever it is. But we can't contribute anything except our sin. Amazing grace indeed. But if we recognize our sin, repent of it, then God forgives us. He forgives us instantly, completely, freely, and repeatedly. First letter of John, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 is a great promise to learn. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we're in denial. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe the word of God? Or do you think you alone have got some sin that Jesus hasn't died for? Because that's what it amounts to if you can't accept that. The promise is that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't this a God worth committing to? Of course he is. But we need to receive his forgiveness to accept it as the present it is, to embrace it, to let it flood through us, cleanse us, heal us. Are you willing to receive God's forgiveness? We began with our greatest need, which is forgiveness. We end with God's greatest gift, which is forgiveness. Let's pray. Let's together for a few moments allow the Holy Spirit in his gentle way to pinpoint anything that needs to be put right with God tonight. We don't have to deal with everything. He's too gracious and gentle to do that. Usually he takes us one step at a time. And so it's likely for most of us he's shining His light on one particular area of darkness that we need to put right. It may be a a cross word spoken earlier or an unhelpful thought just now or the need that you've been walking against God in some particular area. Whatever it is, Respond, bring it to him and ask for forgiveness. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of general confession, but you can make it your own by owning it and saying Amen at the end. Almighty and merciful God, you have revealed yourself as the fountain of all goodness and as our loving Heavenly Father. We confess that we have sinned against you and have done evil in your sight. We ask you to wash us clean and give us grace and power to keep in step with the Holy Spirit that we may bring forth fruit worthy of true repentance we ask this for Jesus' sake Amen forgiven, washed clean and set free now we're in the place to worship and serve him
2: so let's do that, shall we stand? we're going to sing a a final song in this part of the service our offertory song Thank you for saying me what can i say Thank you. Oh, yo. Yeah.
1: Just a moment, I'm going to